Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. In the dark forest, Dante encounters the lion. A lion is described as so terrifying that even the air around him is trembling with fear. That is when he meets his guide, Virgil, who gives him the strength to go through the rest of the afterworld. The surreal lion hoops pay homage to this moment. The shape echo the tail of a lion with its textured tuff at the end. Wear them as a reminder to give you courage through the winter months. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I don't think I have ever been so excited to welcome to the podcast today the trailblazing, fearless, indefatigable icons, Kata Kolvitz and Frida Kahlo of the Gorilla Girls. The anonymous feminist activist artist collective founded in 1985 who go by the guises of deceased female artists, the Gorilla Girls are known to wear masks in public and use facts, humour and outrageous and bold visuals to expose gender and ethnic bias in art, film, politics and in pop culture. Working tirelessly for the past 35 years, the Guerrilla Girls have constantly fought discrimination and supported human rights for all people and all genders through their data-based work, which has been exhibited on buses, billboards, some in the biggest museums in the world from the Tate to the Whitney, but also our very own bedrooms, including my own, with their aim being to spread equality and action through more than 90 posters, mugs, tea towels, workbooks and more. Best known for their outrageous and witty statements, including do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum or the advantages of being a woman artist. It is through humour, bold graphics and data that the Gorilla Girls catch our attention and leave us wondering how just did museums get away with celebrating the history of patriarchy as opposed to the history of art. 
the most inspiring, encouraging, educational, and unfortunately very needed artist collective out there. The Gorilla Girls have changed and are still changing the story of art one stunt at a time. I have been lucky enough to be the owner of much of their merchandise, and I'm delighted to say that they have just brought out a staggering new book, The Gorilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly, the first publication to catalogue the entire career of the Gorilla Girls from 1985 to present. I couldn't be more excited to welcome to the podcast founding Gorilla Girls members, Kata Kolvitz and Frida Kahlo. How are you both doing today? Great, Katie. Great to be here. Yeah, it's so much fun to be here with you. Thank you both so much. So you have spent since 1985, 35 years campaigning for equality in all corners of the world through unforgettable stunt-like actions, whether it be through film, posters. I should add that I have my copy of The Advantage of Being a Women Artist above my desk for as long as I can remember. Who are the Guerrilla Girls and what do you set out to do? Because it seems like it's a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, we're a bunch of artists, all female identified. And around about 1985, we started looking around and we noticed that we were a lot younger then. We noticed that almost (laughs) all of the opportunities and certainly almost all the money in the art world went to white males. And we started asking why. And we were shocked to find out that a lot of people in the art world just thought that was the way it was, that the work of women and artists of color just wasn't up to the standards of the art world. And we went to a protest at the Museum of Modern Art against an exhibition that was supposed to be an international survey of painting and sculpture, very international, (laughs) with 169 artists and only 17 women and eight artists of color. How (gasps) international, how international was that? Oh my gosh. So I will turn it over to Kata to go from there. (laughs) So we're walking around a picket line with a lot of other angry women artists. (laughs) And it was so clear that nobody cared. People thought that museums were meritocracies, where if you were good enough, you were in. And if you weren't, you were out. And we knew from our own world of artists, the world of artists is so great but the art world sucks. We knew that that simply wasn't true. And there was also at that moment, our aha moment, which is why the Gorilla Girls still exist today. The idea that there had to be an in-your-face, disruptive, better way to convince people that the art world was, as you say, a patriarchy and the work of white males was valued and everybody else didn't measure up and weren't good enough. So we had the idea to do posters about this, to try to show people what was really going on. And we now recognize that this was a really game-changing idea, but then it was just, okay, let's do something with big, bold type, statistics, disruptive headlines, something unforgettable if we can manage to do that. And at our very first meeting, which was at Frida's Loft (laughs) in downtown New York, we actually named ourselves Gorilla Girls. We called a bunch of friends to this meeting, named ourselves Gorilla Girls, passed the hat around to pay for printing. Printing was super expensive in those days, and designing a poster required special skills, which luckily it does not anymore. Passed the hat around, printed up those first posters, and within a couple of weeks, we were sneaking around the streets of New York in the middle of the night, pasting these up on the walls. And when that happened, all hell broke loose. 
women artists were excited and empowered and everyone else was really pissed off, especially <laughs> some of the galleries, museums, and male yes. artists who we fingered on these posters <laughs> as being discriminatory. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, it just looks amazing and it's, it, it's completely inspired a whole generation, especially of my generation, to kind of go out there and demand and fight for equality in the art world. But I'm sure that many people have noticed that I'm not actually speaking to the original Frida Kahlo and Peter <laughs> Culvitz, but rather two founding members of the Gorilla Girls. So I, I'd love to ask, why do you choose to speak under these guises and why do you like to remain anonymous? Well, anonymity has a long history in the United States. I mean, from the very early times of the revolution, many of the early revolutionary leaders adopted pseudonyms. So it's just very natural. And anonymous free press is protected as free speech. And we did it at first because the art world was a very small place and we were all afraid of biting the hand that we wanted to feed us. So it was self-protective in the very beginning. But after we got into it, we realized that it was a really great strategy to depersonalize the issue and to speak about the condition of women artists rather than as ourselves, as individuals who wanted something in this system. So it served us in a lot of different ways. And, you know, this was sort of the before the time when words like patriarchy and intersectionality and social practice and institutional critique even existed. We just started to do stuff that we thought had to be done. We claimed the streets because the streets were free and it was a way to get to people quickly. We put our posters up around art galleries. We would do it on a Friday night because we knew people would be going around socializing on Saturday, looking at stuff, chatting everybody up, making contacts, blah, blah, blah. So we would go out the next day and just lurk around the posters and hear what people had to say. And it was amazing. And Oftentimes we got ideas for the next posters based on what people were saying. <laughs> That's genius. That's absolutely genius. I mean, you were working throughout the night. Did anyone ever catch you? <laughs> well, we first started going out with gorilla masks and we ended up like wheat pasting some of our masks to the wall by mistake. <laughs> Because you can't do anything very precise with a gorilla mask. So we then went out and sort of pretended like we were hired by the gorilla girls. <laughs> That's amazing. And so how did the gorilla masks come to be? Because Frida, I love every time I see you on TV or something, you have red lipstick on your gorilla mask. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you are looking very carefully at all this. <laughs> the gorilla masks were totally by chance. I mean, we had decided to be anonymous. We named ourselves Gorilla Girls, but for the freedom fighters you know, not the yeah. animal. And when we first started putting our stuff up on the streets, everyone wanted to talk to us. We had an address on there, so people in those days had to write to us, but the press wanted to talk to us, people wanted to talk to us, artists wanted to talk to us, and what to do about it since we had decided to be anonymous. How could we appear on a TV show or, or in print? So... We're not sure exactly how the mask came about, <laughs> but one of our meetings, one of our members might have been doodling the word gorilla and spelled it like the jungle animal <laughs> instead of the... Honest mistake. Yeah, the revolutionary. And I don't know, we got stuck with these masks and we're still stuck with them ever since. 
I love it. But I, I mean, because you guys go out and about so much traveling the world and everything. I mean, you are yourselves artists too. So you do attend these openings and parties and whatnot as yourself, but you also attend them as Gorilla Girls. I mean, is that not quite stressful, kind of changing Superman style in the bathroom or something? One time I actually had to do that. I had to be myself at something and be the Gorilla Girl. And I did change in the bathroom. So oh you got gosh. it, Katie. That's what happened. <laughs> I would never do that again. Yeah. <laughs> the shoes are always a giveaway. No, I had I had shoes. I had everything. Seriously, a whole new outfit. Yeah. Actually, in Spain once, someone saw me at a gig and then saw me later and looked and said, your zapatos. I recognize your zapatos. <gasps> Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Someone in Spain knows who you are. This is amazing. We're going to track them down. (laughs) It doesn't matter who we are. And, uh, you know, it's really very useful in the art world to have an alter ego. And it's a lot of fun to talk to someone in power, first as a guerrilla girl and then as yourself, to realize the dynamic of power and connection in the art world. How if you present yourself as someone of consequence, you get treated a whole different way, which is really unfortunate. I mean, the art world is based on a whole lot of snobbery and a whole lot of exclusion, which is exactly what we wanted to confront and to reveal. And it's also kind of fun. I remember there was a director at the Guggenheim and I was trying to get him to look at my work and he wouldn't do it when I was myself. But when I called him up as Frida Kahlo talking about something else, it was amazing how fast he came came to the phone. And also you, you talk to people in a mask that you know without a mask and they don't recognize you. Oh my gosh, but what about the voices? I mean, surely people must recognize your voice. The voices have been a problem, totally. Okay, that's the only time. I was on National Public Radio in LA a bunch of years ago, and someone I knew, I've said, I know that was you. (gasps) Only one time was I recognized wearing a mask, because usually someone you know will come right up to you and they won't recognize you at all. But one person actually did and whispered in my ear, I know who you are. And I said, no, you don't. No one ever recognizes me. She goes, yes, I do. And she did know. So it's it's all bizarre. Oh, my God. To be honest, I think when they hear your voice coming out of the mask, they're less likely to identify you than if they just hear your voice on the radio without the mask. There's something about a voice coming out of a mask that's very disconcerting. And a lot of people, including Tracy Emin, who interviewed us years ago, you know, fearless Tracy Emin looked at me and said, you know, I'm having a hard time talking to you with that mask on. (laughs) And I said, well, that's exactly why we wear it, Tracy. (laughs) Yes, I should add that the cameras are not on for this uh, Skype call today. Yeah, there is a kind of inexplicable power to the mask. Yeah. Even though it's hard in these times of authenticity and transparency to maintain a group of anonymous do-gooders. Yeah. The only thing I can measure on is asking quite famous female artists, my podcast, who have rejected because they don't do audio interviews, but I won't say anything else. But the (laughs) 1980s, when you started, obviously, came out of the feminist movement of the 1970s, you know, in part thanks to people like Linda Nochlin with her seminal essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, which this podcast is obviously modeled on seminal seminal oh my gosh (laughs) I didn't even write that I didn't even write that I'm so 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 sorry I'm so sorry I someone pointed that out to me recently I'm horrified germinal how's how's that germinal (laughs) 
Germinal. Okay, okay, let's do the question again. No, no, no. I think you should you should you should broadcast it exactly like that. Okay, so for the listeners, do not use the S word. Steeped in misogyny. So I mean, I mean, what was the climate like in America and around the world at that time? Because, you know, was it not already so focused or was that work not being actioned enough? When we started out, the work of women artists and artists of color was not considered as good as the fancy art that was in museums. Today, that has completely changed. And we're glad and proud to be a part of making that change. But in the beginning, there was just so much disbelief. And we wanted to set ourselves apart from that fantastic wave of feminism in the 70s. We were a different generation, although we have always been multi-generational. So one of the issues in the beginning was convincing a few of our early members who were part of that initial incredible wave of feminist art and feminism that it was really important for us to use the word girls in our name. This was before girl power and before a lot of people took that up later. But at this time, they had fought their whole lives to be called women. And now we wanted to name ourselves Gorilla Girls. So that was really interesting. You know, to be honest, though, there was a sort of surge of interest in women artists in the 70s. And then in the 80s, there was a backlash. And even though the, the art world never wanted to identify themselves with Reaganism, you know, Ronald Reagan was president then, and that was a huge cultural shift that we have not even gotten over to this day. It was a real reset. And a lot of the women artists who were prominent in the 70s, their careers were put on hold. And one of the reasons we did this exhibition about the Whitney biennials was we wanted to track that. We wanted to show that the culture was getting larger and larger, but the biennials were getting smaller and smaller and that there was a kind of professionalization of artists and the professionalization was around the art market and it just appeared that the art market wanted white men. They were going to invest a lot of money. They were going to invest it in white men. And it was a very bizarre and strange kind of backlash time. Yeah, gosh. I mean, it, it must it's so depressing for, well, firstly, for you working in the 80s, but also for those women who tirelessly went out to fight that as well. I mean, we're still battling it today. It's no we're near enough, even though you've done so much work to constantly fight this. But I want to go right to the beginning. You tell the story of, you know, creating these posters throughout the night. Your first posters had slogans such as, what do these artists have in common? These galleries show no more than 10% women artists or none at all. How many women artists have had one-person exhibitions at New York museums last year? What was the sort of first call of action that you wanted to make? Why go after the museums and galleries first? Nobody knew about these statistics, okay? There was a general idea that it wasn't very good. But actually researching and showing these statistics really was a game changer because it was undeniable. So we could have done posters that said, most of the artists in the museum are white males. You know, they go, all right, okay, fine. But if you actually say how many women had one-person exhibitions at museums last year, and it's like zero, 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 and one in New York had one, you realize right away This is a systemic problem, an institutional problem, and a problem of deep, deep prejudice. Because as we all know, there are so many fantastic artists out there. 
there's no lack of great artists. I mean, you know that just from doing your podcast all this time. <laughs> it's going to take me my whole life to finish this podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe a few more lives because there are just so many incredible artists who devote their lives to doing their work. They're not doing it because they want to become rich. They're doing it to change the world, to explore, to show themselves new things they didn't know before, and to show the rest of us new things that none of us knew before. But the system was set up to keep almost everyone out because of the philosophy that we have to have this one great genius after another springing from nowhere. Suddenly he creates this art that's never been seen before, which is a total, total misconception because all artists are part of their own time. They're influenced by their own time and influenced by each other plus artists from the past. These are worlds of creative people, not one genius coming from nowhere, from outer space each time. And we were convinced that it wasn't history if the voices of women and artists of color were not included in it, that art history was really the history of white male artists, I mean, Western art history. Yeah. And everyone universalized it and thought, oh, well, that's just what it is. But now I think there's hardly anyone who would argue that you can write the history of art, either Western art or global art right now, without the voices of women and artists of color. But at that time, the incredulity was just overwhelming. But deep inside, we were laughing at it because we knew we were on the right side of that argument. And it was just going to be a question of time until things would change. However, what's sad about it is that the art world is still driven by the art market. And the Mm. art market now really puts uh, unequal value on the work of white males. And if you look at wealth in the world, where is wealth in the world concentrated, but certainly in males, and mostly in white men. So the art world sort of followed that trend without being honest about it. There are artists of color and women artists who have been led into that canon, but only in small numbers. And if you look at the highest price for a living woman artist for her work compared to the highest price for a living male artist. I think it was Jenny Seville compared to David Hockney. Her work sold for 14% of what his work sold for. And that's an embarrassing statistic. We realize that's, you know, dealing with the world of millionaires and billionaires and millionaire artists. But all the same, it's an example of how the market devalues the work of women and artists of color. On the other hand, the most popular art there is is street art. And the reason is it's the opposite because people just go out and they do their thing on the street. The system, I mean, Frida's completely right. The system is just completely corrupt. It's billionaire collectors donating the same 10 artists they all collect to museums. And we don't need any more of that. We need new things. And luckily today, you can get around these gatekeepers. First of all, there are many people inside institutions who are making change, want change, and are more empowered all the time to make this change, even though the museums are still stuck with some moribund people sometimes at the top and also these moribund uh, discriminatory collections over all these years. But the reason we went on the street in the beginning is without having the in-depth analysis of all of this that we have now, we understood 
that artists want their work to be seen. It's great when it's in museums where there are art lovers, but you can't wait. 99% of artists will never be in museums, but that doesn't mean they're not great artists. So it's really important to take this into your own hands and do it your own way. And that's what inspired us to go directly to the street and put it out there. We had this idea to use these disruptive headlines, crazy visuals, and facts, facts, facts to prove our case. And we love street art and the street was the perfect place for it. Yeah, no, I love how you also talk about how it's much better as well to have an artwork in a sort of college dorm room than (laughs) sitting above the sofa of some kind of billionaire's strange beige sitting room or in a vault underground (laughs) somewhere. One of your works, The Advantage of Being a Woman Artist, I was given it when I was about 15 or so, and it's always hung above my bed. And it's amazing because it's even though I'm 26, so I don't really have much money for an art collection, but I have this. And the fact that you can get your hands on that is amazing. And then, Katia, I think it's so interesting because some Someone like Katakolvitz was an artist who was working at the turn of the century in sort of German expressionism who created prints for the masses. It's interesting because you don't necessarily have kind of one-off editions. You have this mass-produced mugs, tea towels, everything. What are your intentions behind that? Well, I think we re- really want to create a different economic model of how an artist can survive. I mean, we never went the route of galleries and collectors because that involves an elite And for that to be your goal, you know, you join the elite. And for us, art in a democracy is about everyone. And if you look at film and at music and theater, you know, that sort of exists. Everyone can buy a book or go to a movie or buy a CD. So we always wondered why art is so grounded in the production of a unique expensive object that can only be in one place at one time and can be controlled by whoever has the money to own it. That's kind of sad. So we always worked against that. And our portfolios in over 50 museums in the world, they all have exactly the same thing. Really? Yes. None of them can claim to have anything more than anyone else. And we're really happy about that. And we would like artists to look past this idea of collectors and think about taking their work right out into the world and making it available to a lot of people. And I'm really proud that we're doing that. Yeah. Still, though, since museums claim that they're preserving culture, they must cast a wider and wider net. Instead of being about the few, they have to be about the deep, rich, creative work that is out there. And the system makes it really hard for them, too, because things are too expensive. This has got to change. It is slowly changing, but museums need to be totally reinvented. Most of them started out as the collections of oligarchs, kings, and queens. And it's still basically how they're organized. You can see that residue, just the smoke coming up from all of that. Yeah, you travel halfway across the world to some place that has a different climate, a different culture, a different language, completely different history. And you see the same five goddamn artists that you see everywhere. <laughs> it's really disappointing. It's really disappointing. I know. I know. You know Why but, do we need another Rembrandt show? Why do we need another Van Gogh show? I mean, yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do believe, by the way, that if you want to show art that nobody knows about, but that is really fantastic, you should probably include the name Van Gogh in every single exhibition title. 
Because if you have that title there, they will come. So if you're doing like Latin American conceptual art, you should call it Latin American conceptual art and Bango. <laughs> Top tip for everyone around the world. But I love the way that you talk to people through your work. It's not just through these amazing bold statements, but one of your favorite works of mine is Dear Art Collector. And by the way, just for our listeners who don't know this work, it's often on, printed on a little bright pink tea towel and very linear handwriting. Dearest Art Collector, it has come to our attention that your collection, like most, does not contain enough art by women. We know that you feel terrible about this and will rectify the situation immediately. All of our love, Gorilla Girls. <laughs> And you forgot to say that the stationery that it's written on has a daisy with a frown in the middle, <laughs> a very, a very oh sad gosh. flower. How have I missed that? How have I missed that? <laughs> and the word rectify, that's the keystone. Everything revolves around that. You will rectify the situation immediately. <laughs> It's so good. But I mean, because that was in 1986. When was it that you really started to get attention? When did you really start to get noticed by the wider public? Well, pretty much from the beginning, it was like a shock. It was like a slap in the face. And I can't say that the early attention was all positive. Yeah. People were arguing. They were calling us cowards because we hit wow. our faces. And then we would <gasps> say, well, what about Superman and Wonder Woman? And those people hiding their identities and their do-gooders too. And it took a while for people to really accept what we were saying and to think about it. Change doesn't come overnight. And when you challenge someone's fundamental beliefs about something, it takes a little while for them to feel comfortable realizing that's not quite true. However, you know, women artists and artists of color knew right away. I mean, we had tremendous support from them because we were talking about their condition. So it was really fun to have frenemies and enemies and, you know. <laughs> but, you know, Katie, one thing I think you're getting at there also is the incredible sea change with the Gorilla Girls. Because, yes, we started out, the group itself was an outsider group making trouble, telling people stuff they didn't want to hear. But about 15 years ago, we started to have exhibitions in museums. And yeah. this was a real crisis of conscience for us. It started with the Venice Biennale in 2005, where we did a huge installation in one of the main shows that was right at the beginning. So you walked through this with our worldview of the art world, and it really colored everything you saw afterwards. Because it was the Venice Biennale, you know, people all over the world, and especially in Europe, saw this work that they hadn't seen before, probably. And we started getting a lot of invitations, Istanbul, Tate Modern, the Netherlands, Germany, China, all over the world. And we did have to kind of pause a little bit and think about that. Should this disruptive anti-art world work be inside museums? And one of our goals from the beginning was to get our work out to as wide an audience as possible. So we decided, yeah, we're going to try this. Let's try this. And every time to this day, and then we've now had hundreds of exhibitions, every single time we have work up in museums in the U.S., around the world, we get email from people and notes from people and comments saying, I never knew about this before. So it's become an incredible way for us to spread our message. And we 
guarantee if you take a look at some of our work, like one of our most well-known posters, Do Women Have to Be Naked to Get into the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Yeah, such a good one. Thanks. If you really take a look (laughs) at that, I dare you ever to go into a museum, no matter how much you know or don't know about art. And once you're in there, think about what is on the walls and why. Yeah. I mean, I came to your work through going to a museum. I've seen it at the Whitney and Tate Modern. And you're kind of in the museum looking at criticism of the museum, but it makes you think so much. But I mean, for those who I'm sure every single listener is aware of this fantastic poster, but it's yellow and pink and your kind of iconic colours. And it says, do women have to be naked to the Met Museum? And you made it twice. You made it once in 89, which had less than 5% of the artists in the modern art sections are women, but 85% of the nudes are female. And then made it again in 2011 and the stats weren't that different. However, there were more naked males. So <laughs> Okay, that's good. <laughs> Get Leonor Feeney in there. <laughs> Perhaps we have to be content with that as progress, but let's see what comes next. You know, this is a perfect example of how we craft our work because basically we wanted to tell people there aren't enough women artists on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But instead of just having that be a poster, which would be instantly forgotten, we found a way to combine it with the statistics of how much women's bodies are. They may not be appreciated, but their bodies are number one in Western art, especially if they're naked. So combining those two things puts it into a whole nother realm and makes it what we consider a successful work, which means unforgettable. And we're working on a project now, which is not in the book because it's still being developed, but hopefully it will debut next year in London at Art Night. It's called The Male Grays. And the idea of the male gaze is sort of standard and accepted. The idea that art for a long time has, at least Western art, European art, has been seen through the eyes of men and it's conceived through the ideas of men and that's why you see so many women as the topic in western art and many of them are naked and many of them are doing nothing but sitting there to be appreciated they're idle they're bored and then you take that a little bit further and there are tons of paintings where women are being assaulted they're being seduced they're being abducted they're being raped they're being murdered so we realize that sexual assault is a subtext it's a grand theme in western art because it's a theme in our culture and how can you look at all of those renaissance mythological paintings of women being abducted the rape of europa and not realize there was a lot of rape going on and we would really like to have that aspect talked about because when you start to look into the lives of the artists, many of them were vicious and cruel to women in their lives. So we want to make the connection between the way artists behave and the subject matter uh, of the art, and then how that connects with patriarchy in our culture. And we called it the male grays, not the male gaze, the male grays. And of course, you know, we live now in the Me Too movement or moment And we had to start thinking about things like that. So we have a whole bunch of work in the book that is about those issues of actual harassment and abuse. And one thing that caught our eye and we just couldn't stop thinking about is we imagine that in museums, there are these meetings right now where they're trying to figure out if an artist 
himself was known to be a rapist, a sexual abuser, a pedophile. Do you have to mention that in the wall label when the work is of young girls or something like that? You know, they're all trying to figure it out. I know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) we decided, we've done a few works about this issue. We decided to try to help museums figure it out because, you know, some of them are very timid. So, of course, they don't want to say anything. So we decided to give them three ways to write a wall label, one for museums afraid of alienating their billionaire collectors who donated the artist's work, another kind of label for museums conflicted about disclosing an artist's abuse next to his art, and, of course, one for museums who need a little help from the Gorilla Girls. <laughs> but, I mean, it's not just women that you're dealing with as well. You deal with issues of race. I mean, right now there's a huge debate going on in England at the moment with Tate's Cafe. They've got a disgusting mural by Rex Whistler in their cafe, which depicts the enslavement of a black child and the distress of his mother. And you're also fighting against these issues as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you deal with issues of exclusion, there's you have to deal with all forms of exclusion and also the fact that we live especially in the United States, in a country with a vicious history of slavery and the resulting racism that we have not yet confronted. And there's just no way you can talk about culture without acknowledging that and also the genocide of you know indigenous people here. Our culture, which has always sort of been bandied about as being a bunch of individualists and heroes and people who go their own way and you know, we're revolutionaries. It's not exactly like that at all. We have a lot of dark, dark, dark corners in our history that we have not confronted, and culture reflects that as well. I mean, the white maleness of the art market and art galleries and museums are all part and parcel of that, you know, racist colonialist history. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite early, early, early posters, which if you change the last few words of the headline. It could be about any of these issues today, which is when racism and sexism are no longer fashionable, what will your art collection be worth? So we're, we're talking about that in the art world, but that is true of, there's just so much to do. There's so much more to do. And I don't know if we can ever trust our government or any government to make things better. We somehow have to keep pressing on them to do one, at least one number of things over and over and over. But this has got to change. And also, I mean, artists, because they're so dependent on museums, they develop a really unhealthy respect for them without really examining them. And what I'm so heartened about now, as perhaps as a result of the pandemic and museums closing, It has empowered museum employees to take it upon themselves to try to change the institutions that they work in and not just be passive employees because museums are run on a lot of capitalist values. The minute they had to close down, what did they do? They laid off staff. Meanwhile, they have donors who give $40 million to build a gallery and they can't find a donor to give a couple million dollars to keep the education department intact 
and working so that when the museum opens again, there will be a functioning education department. A lot of museums here in New York, the new museum as an example, used the pandemic to break unions. So when they rehired people, they didn't hire back all of the people who were very instrumental in forming unions. I mean, it's shocking that American museums are not unionized and that many of the employees are paid barely minimum wage while the directors make more than the president of the United States earns, you know? Yeah. Armstrong at the Guggenheim makes $1.4 million. Glenn Lowry at no. NOVA makes over $2 million. What? Yes, yes. I mean, <laughs> that's... different to the UK, I think. I know, yes, yes. So it, is, we... it is different in the UK, yeah. <laughs> $2 million. Dollars. We, we oh need my to God. look at that. I mean, the yeah. museums are becoming... Oh, my gosh. ...replicas, duplicates of the corporate structure of the United yeah. States, which is yeah. really about income inequality the money at the top exploitation at the bottom and not very much in the middle and i think that it's really time to reset that and let people know who love art love going to museums think of them as educational institutions they need to challenge those museums and really make them live up to their educational mission i mean there are people serving on the boards of new york museums who are in the most nefarious of businesses. They make money off of for-profit prisons. They make money securitizing student loans. They make money manufacturing opioids. They make money manufacturing weapons of state control like tear gas and rubber bullets. I mean, why should we let them art wash their bad reputations by giving money to a museum? I mean, it's unspeakable, really. But I mean, what's incredible about your work as well, that it doesn't just speak to art museums, it speaks to the whole world. It speaks to any institution. I mean, that's what's so great about the power of art, isn't it? It can spread boundaries. I love the posters that you made in the early noughties when you said the birth of feminism with (laughs) Pamela Anderson and Halle Berry and Catherine Zeta-Jones dressed in their very voluptuous bikinis. But you know, the fact that there is so much to tear down in every industry as well. Yeah, there really is. And we've tried to take on a whole bunch of them. We're talking about art today. But we've also done a lot of anti-war stuff. We've done stuff about the conservative Senate and conservative government and Trump. And of course, we're going to keep doing things about that. We also have done a lot of anti-film business billboards and posters. And those have been really interesting to do, too. Birth of Feminism was one of those, but we also did a big billboard a couple of blocks from where the Academy Awards are held, the anatomically correct Oscar. He's white and male, just like the guys who win. And then it had all these statistics, like our usual, you know, prove it, babe, and we're proving it. And that was pretty incredible to work on and to be able to do. I mean, there's so many parts of society and people to attack in this world. And we apologize that we haven't gotten to everything, but we do have a few (laughs) hundred projects and we're still working. We're still working. 
we figure we've got another 35 years at least. <laughs> I mean, when you started in 1985, 35 years ago, I mean, where did you think we would be by now? You know, we never really, or at least I never had a plan. I was just angry. And we did a yeah. couple things that worked and interested people. And we kept writing it. We kept asking different questions. I mean, we didn't know the answers. We just knew there were some problems. And if you had talked to us 35 years ago, we wouldn't be spouting all this stuff now about what's wrong yeah. in the world. We just knew that a few small things. We hadn't put all the pieces together. So I didn't have a plan. I'm shocked that I've spent this much of my life doing this. But you know, I don't think that's exactly fair because many of our members are activists as well as artists. So we did know about the system and were against the system and had protested the system. Our analysis of it is much more sophisticated now than when we started out. But we were oppositional in our lives, as well as in our work, and as well as the group Guerrilla Girls. And have you two, you are obviously the founding members, which is why it's just such a privilege to be able to speak to you. But are you the only founding members who remain active? And how many Guerrilla Girls have there been over time? Oh, we have so many secrets and I'm afraid... <laughs> How do I become one? The size, well, that's very another question. Hard. Yes, that is very hard. Yeah, well, we are the only remaining founding members. And maybe that's because we're kind of bossy. But Good. the size of our group is, well, you can imagine. And I, I think that your fantasy is probably more interesting than the reality. And when people ask us if they can join, we say, well, why do you want to join us? We're cooked. If you want to do the kind of work that we do, figure out what fits for this time and what strategies fit for now and make your own group. Be a continuation of what we're doing, but you don't have to join us. Well, people are doing that. Yeah, that we heard a lot more about that earlier, but people are doing so much in fantastic art. But as for our members themselves, you know, we've counted up I'd say over 60 people have been members of the Gorilla Girls, some for months, some for decades, some for one meeting. You know, it runs the gamut. And they're cis, lesbian, transgender, diverse in age, sexual orientation, class, and for many ethnic backgrounds, South Asian, African-American, Latinx, European. We each, of course, have a pseudonym honoring some dead woman artists who we feel a connection to. And our dirty little secret is really that the Gorilla Girls have always been small at any yeah. one time. There is no way you could do work like this with 100 members. So we've been always more like a cell. It's varied a little, but a lot of people have been part of it and added amazing things to it. Incredible members. And we're always small when we actually have to sit down and agree on an idea for a poster, a book, a billboard, a video, etc. What do you hope that people in the future will see from you guys? I think they don't just gain the courage to keep going. Millennia of patriarchy is not going to be reversed by 150, 200 years of feminism or womanism or whatever you want to call it. This drive that we have for equal rights for everyone. Absolutely. Well, Katakolvitz and Frida Kahlo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist, dead or alive, who you'd most like to meet, and perhaps this time who you'd most like to be in the Gorilla Girls group, who would it be and what would you say to them? <laughs> I don't know. Can I get back to you in a week about that? <laughs> I wouldn't mind meeting Frida Kahlo. 
Although I think she would be very impatient with me. <laughs> She'd be a fun girly girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about you, Kata? Would it be the real Kata? Well, that would be incredible. I mean, she did all this anti-war work, work about women's issues, workers' issues. And I picked her as my pseudonym because she was an activist as well as an artist. And I am as well. But... I don't know. If the Gorilla Girls has taught me one thing, it's about not choosing. There are just yeah. so many amazing artists who I care about, who have influenced me, dead and alive, and whose work I just love, love to see and think about. And that's true of writers. That's true of filmmakers. I don't want to pick. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you both so, so, so much for coming on the podcast today. Wonderful. Maybe we'll see you in London if we get there next <gasps> year. That'd be fun. Please. Thank you all so much for listening to the 46th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the icons, Frida Kahlo and Kata Kolvitz of the Gorilla Girls. I'm absolutely amazed at the tireless work that they have done over the past few decades and really hope you enjoyed this special five-year anniversary episode. I've linked to further websites in the show notes and do make sure you pick up their new book, The Art of Behaving Badly. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.